Buongiorno a tutti from Rome, Italy. It is the one of a kind Northern Miner podcast with the wonderful Jeffrey Christian. We did a 40 minute interview with the generous, controversial Jeffrey Christian. And I'm quite excited about this interview. If I don't say so myself, I think I'm asking him some questions that he doesn't often get asked. You decide. If you think I'm just doing the same old, do leave a comment in the SoundCloud, on the website, not on the Spotify. I don't believe you can leave comments on the Spotify. You can leave them on the YouTube, though. And that channel is growing, and we also post other videos there, too. So do check that out. Hello and welcome. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and I am looking at the beautiful buildings near Campo di Fiore. You know, Airbnb these days is just amazing. I'm here with my girlfriend and her son. And yeah, what can I say? Uh, it's uh, It doesn't break the bank. And what's interesting is we stayed in a hotel the first night, and I think we'd be driving each other crazy if we had to stay in that small room, all of us with no walls. You stay in an Airbnb for the same price. Everybody has a bedroom, practically, and a nice living room. We're living better than we live in Berlin. So turning to the markets, we continue to see the 10-year bond chill, which is interesting. Jeffrey has a lot to say about bonds in this interview. So yeah, at 1.759%. So the 10-year is chilling, which probably is good. Gold is a little bit down at 1,808. The NASDAQ yesterday was up 3%. So kind of a sideways market. I mean, maybe the real flashing light for me is oil at $88.15. I mean, these high oil prices, we know what they do to the economy. Anybody that was around in 2007 when we had $150 oil, we know what happened. Uh, the economy broke. That's <laughs> what happened. I mean, I'm sure there are many different interpretations of what happened there, but that couldn't have helped. Let's put it that way. Yeah, so we are, you know, perhaps at an inflection point. People are talking about a regime change. We are at a point of, you know, rising interest rates, potentially. At least that's what they're telling us. So interesting, interesting. Gold and silver, trend sideways. And that's what you hear from Jeffrey Christian in this interview. And I kind of really got him to kind of give me some numbers here or some dates or just, you know, vague. Nobody knows the future, of course. But the general situation as Jeffrey sees it, from what I gather, and I always qualify when I discuss Jeffrey Christian's opinions, my interpretation of them, because he is very careful with language. And I've always noticed that. If he thinks you're overstating things, he will let you know and he will correct that. So, but my understanding of Jeffrey Christian, and that's why I phrase it that way, is that we're going to have a bit of a break. As we were discussing in this interview, he thinks that commodities, this rise we've seen in the last year, that a lot of the gains are baked in for the next two years. And then after that, as the economy starts to pick up steam again, he expects commodity prices to go even higher. So... As I asked him, you know, where do you go as an investor? And he said, it's a broken field. You know, you're just going to have to do your research. There's no kind of easy trades. This risk on, risk off meme, as he calls it, is starting to break down. And as we've been kind of discussing here, you know, Rowan Reddy last week, there are no easy answers right now. So you're just going to have to pick and choose your opportunities and really do your research and not look for the easy answers. don't know if you can hear the bells out there. Every 15 minutes uh, near Campo di Fiore, we get the beautiful church bells. And what a beautiful city Rome is. I've been here several times, but it's always great to be back. And it, it, what a wonderful thing to show my girlfriend and her son the Vatican for the very first time. And if you haven't shown your kids or yourself the Vatican, you owe it to yourself to do that. It is a wonderful place. You could say it's like the Louvre, you know, it's its own major cultural institution. The beating heart of the Roman Catholic Church, and you see St. Peter's there, and it's just an unbelievable structure. So, and for the record, I am not uh, religious, but my family is Italian, so I do come out of that culture, and I appreciate it. And it is magnificent. With that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner, and you can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner, and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. 
And turning to the website, we have a few uranium stories I wanted to tackle because I think there's something significant here. Searchlight Resources finds uranium south of the Athabasca Basin. And of course, this is in Saskatchewan. And I just thought this was interesting because the Athabasca Basin is kind of always seen as the area where all the uranium is, at least for the explorers. It's, it's the area that you always associate with Saskatchewan uranium. And searchlight resources have gone south of the Athabasca Basin, and that is part of their strategy. So let's take a closer look. It's by Henry Lazenby. Canadian explorer Searchlight Resources has generated renewed interest in grassroots uranium exploration outside the established boundaries of the Athabasca Basin in northern Saskatchewan. Chairman and VP Exploration Alf Stewart tells the Northern Miner. In October, the company announced high-resolution aeromagnetic and radiometric surveys on the company's Kulik Lake Rare Earth Element project that has returned interesting values for uranium and thorium. And thorium is, you know, as far as I understand, that's a metal. It's kind of similar to uranium. There are people out there, like I heard an interview about five years ago on the Financial Sense News Hour. might have been longer. And it was this expert on thorium, and he was basically saying it was way safer than regular uranium, and it does the same work and better. And it was really interesting. I just never heard about it again. And he basically said, you know, the forces at work, there's just too much momentum for uranium right now. And so thorium is just kind of uh, a sideshow metal right now. But he was a firm believer. In this. So anyway, so just for a little bit of context of what thorium is, and they are finding uranium and thorium near Kulik Lake, which is a rare earth element project. The development, which is 165 kilometers north of Larange and 65 kilometers south of the former Key Lake uranium mine, prompted a junior staking rush in an area not formerly considered as perspective for the high-grade uranium the basin is famous for. And we have a quote from Chairman and VP Exploration Elf Stewart, quote, Searchlight uses thorium as a pathfinder for REEs, rare earth elements, in the mineral monazite, which is the principal mineral in the known Kulik Lake REE showing. The highest thorium value from the radiometric survey was located over known Kulik Lake REE trenches, which yielded historical assays of 56% total rare earth oxide. So, a little bit of geo-speak there. Bear with me. We are on a mining podcast, so that, that is to be expected. Let's see if we can find something slightly more accessible here. Okay, and so if we scroll down a bit, and we have another quote, and based on this radiometric survey, we've expanded our property to 300 square kilometers and are now surrounded by uranium explorers. Pure Point Uranium to the north, Ross McElroy, which is probably fission uranium, to the east, Sky Harbor Resources and others are all in the area surrounding us. They're now looking in the basement because they realize that the basement can also host extensive deposits. The key question is, how close to the Athabasca Basin do you have to be? And my suggestion is maybe people have been sticking too close to the boundaries of the Athabasca Basin. But deposits could exist anywhere within the Wollaston Lake Fold Belt, not just right at the fringes and under the Athabasca Cover. And interestingly, he also discusses how the Kulik Lake project has some of the, quote, highest grade rare earth assays globally at over 50% rare earths, and it's never been drilled. So I just highlight this. We get discoveries here all the time at the Northern Miner, but this one seems a little bit more exciting, shall we say. You put it this way, if I was a big uranium investor and I'm not, this would definitely perk up my ears. I actually do not invest in mining companies, and that's all for the best, being a host of a mining podcast. If I were to be a uranium investor, I would find this story particularly interesting, and you can find it on northernminer.com. Searchlight Resources finds uranium south of the Athabasca Basin. Continuing on the uranium theme, we have a uranium special in this week's Northern Miner. So you may want to check that out. That is going to be on sale next week. So there's a big uranium special. So check that out. If you just want to read it online, you can subscribe to the Northern Miner at northernminer.com slash subscribe. Our next story, uranium, quote, has to be part, end quote, of electrification, says Dev Randawa. Now, Dev is a 
former, I believe, CEO of Fish and Uranium. Now, let's see what he is up to. This is by Henry Lazenby and Amanda Stutt. The continued industrialization and urbanization of the global economy have thrust energy security back to the fore. According to uranium industry doyen, Dev Randawa. Now, I had to look up the word doyen. I'm actually, I've done a master's in English and I've actually never seen that word before. What doyen means, according to a quick little Google search, doyen definition, the most respect or a prominent person in a particular field. So, okay. Um, where were we? Okay. So according to Dev Randawa, it creates a perfect storm to bring nuclear energy back into the critical role as the baseline power supply in a world increasingly reliant on unreliable renewable power sources such as solar and wind. And we have a quote, if you simply take the math of how much electricity we need, how fast China and India are growing, and we want to electrify everything we can, it, uranium, has to be a part of it. Randawa said in an interview, I'm seeing things I haven't seen since I got into this business, like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett spending $4.2 billion setting up a small reactor in Wyoming. Smart money, follow it. It's been rushing into the nuclear space for some time now, and it's a small space. If big money is coming into a small space, we've got a correction with uranium prices moving up. I, yeah, let's see. I mean, I, I guess maybe I'm just too scarred. I've heard the same siren song since 2010. I mean, it looks a little bit more, uh, it does seem more credible these days because we actually have seen a move up. So there does seem to be momentum in the uranium trade. But again, I've been hearing about the this, you know, supply demand fundamentals for 12 years. And it seems like in the last year, year and a half, since really March 2020, it seems to be starting to play out. But don't forget, I mean, you know, mid-2020, Cameco was taking uranium and shutting down mines in order to reduce supply. Okay, so I just add that as context because, again, I've been hearing this story and I'm not saying it's not true. I've been hearing this story for 12 years and it looks like it's actually happening this time. But uh, before you rush out and buy every uranium stock you can find, just keep that in mind. Okay, so in September 2021, the spot price for uranium shot up to a nine-year high of $50.80 per pound, ending a years-long slide that dated back to the days following the 2011 Fukushima Daiichi reactor disaster in Japan, which chilled global interest in nuclear power. Since hitting an all-time high of $136.22 per pound in June 2007, spot uranium prices since 2012 have traded under the critical $50 per pound level, and falling as low as $18 per pound. So it's actually quite an extensive interview with Dev Randawa. And so I've just really touched maybe a quarter of it. So if you want to read the whole thing, just go to northernmire.com. It's on the main page. Uranium has to be a part of electrification, says Dev Randawa. And finally, on the uranium front, CIBC initiates coverage of Cameco and remains, quote, bullish on uranium sector. And this is by Daniel Sekulik. And it says here... CIBC Capital Markets has initiated coverage of Cameco with an outperformer rating and a price target in the next 12 to 18 months of $37 for the Canadian uranium producer's shares, while also taking a bullish view of uranium pricing. Quote, we expect nuclear energy, a scalable, low-carbon energy source, to be key in reducing global dependency on fossil fuels as efforts to curb climate change persist. Now, this is according to CIBC analyst Bryce Adams, who wrote this in a research note in mid-January. Now. We got to give Cameco credit because they have been pushing this narrative of the environmental benefit of nuclear power, which in the 90s was this would have been a heresy to make this claim. It was seen as completely unenvironmental. And we got to give credit to Cameco, I think, in large part and to the uranium industry, maybe in general. I think everybody's done their part in that industry to kind of rebrand uranium as a the environmental solution. And I think we were discussing a few shows ago on the, can we make mining cool? In my opinion, to give my two cents on this, that really is the solution for the mining industry. It's the same playbook. The mining industry, there's a perception out there, as we all know, that exists, that thinks that the mining industry is anti-environment. And I think really the solution to this is to really rebrand geologists 
and the mining industry as stewards of the environment. And we are the people who are taking care of the earth and making sure we're getting those metals you need for, you know, these renewable, for, for the electrification of the grid to make the economy reliant on renewable energy and to clean up carbon emissions. And that really, that we are at the front lines of that, I think is the really the solution to editorialize here because it comes up at every single conference. <laughs> so, you know, how to make it cool and attractive. I really think uh, we have to follow the, the uranium industry's playbook on that one. I, I think that is the solution. And it's sort of like, you know, I think it, it's a strong argument. Continuing with CIBC, quote, we believe Cameco offers investors tier one assets with premium jurisdictional exposure, a significant reserve base, a strong balance sheet, and a reasonable valuation. Cameco's Toronto listed shares are currently trading at $24.17 within a trading range of $15.79 and $35.47 Canadian. And Adams wrote that his $37 target for Cameco shares is based on a 2x price to net value that captures, quote, the high quality of the company's uranium assets, long mine life, low cost of production, strong balance sheet, and its standing as a go-to name among uranium producer and developer peers. So that is your uranium update. Again, you can read deeper on all those stories on northernminer.com. And so we have a long interview with Jeffrey. I'm just going to touch on a couple more stories here. Amplat sells stake in two mines to rival Sabanye Stillwater. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi. And Anglo-American Platinum has agreed to sell its 50% stake in the Kroondal and Maricana Platinum Group Metals Mines in South Africa for just one rand or six cents to rival Sabanye Stillwater, the company said today. And the deal gives Sibenye Stillwater full ownership of the large Krundal open pit mine northwest of Johannesburg, in which both companies held a 50% interest each as part of the so-called Krundal pool and share agreement dating back to 2003. Finally, it just says here, without the deal, Krundal would have closed in 2025 as certain shafts reached the boundaries of the lease area by the end of 2020. So interesting. Uh, me and Jeffrey talk about PGMs in our interview, so that's kind of an interesting one to touch on. Uh, Perseus Mining has secured key stakes in two African gold assets, and one is in North and the other is in West Africa. And Perseus Mining is an Australian gold producer, so Australia on the march, buying everything in sight, I say jokingly. And uh, De Beers, we always love a good diamond story, De Beers boosts production to meet recovering demand. You know, a few years ago, in one of the last PDEX I attended, so maybe three years ago, you know, the diamond story probably couldn't have gotten any more bearish because it was at the heyday of the lab-created diamond, but we are seeing a recovery in diamond demand. So if diamonds are in your area of interest, you may want to go to northernminer.com. We have a great story by Cecilia Jamasmi about how diamond demand is recovering and how De Beers had to boost production. Those are your news stories, and now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on February 1st, gold is trading at $1,806.78 per ounce. That is $36 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $22.79 per ounce. That is $1.03 lower than last week. Platinum is trading $21 higher at $1,041.22 per ounce. And palladium is trading at $2,385.17 per ounce. And that is $221 higher than last week. So a lot of volatility in palladium. And I discussed that with Jeffrey Christian. I mean, two months ago, palladium was at $1,683. Now it is at 2385 so it is up 50% in two months. Quite something. Jeffrey was saying it is not a very liquid market because it's fairly small. But we will hear more of that soon. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.39 per pound. That is 13 cents lower than last week. Aluminum is trading a penny higher at $1.41 per pound. 
and lead is trading five cents lower at a dollar four per pound. And nickel is trading at $10.32 per pound. That is 57 cents lower than last week. And tin is trading at $19.26 per pound. That is 65 cents lower than last week. And cobalt is trading 42 cents lower at $31.96 per pound. And finally, zinc is trading two cents lower at $1.65 per pound. It looks like, you know, precious metals down a bit while industrial metals trend sideways with the outlier being palladium and a little bit platinum, but really palladium is the standout and nickel at $10.32. Well, consolidating at higher levels. I mean, I think that's what we see across the board. Tin at $19.26. Yeah, a little lower from last week's, you know, moonshot. Remember after the Chinese central bank, I think it's the PBOC, said they were easing. So, you know, really consolidation at higher levels. Let's see what happens next. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Jeffrey Christian, managing partner of CPM Group. And we go into a wide-ranging discussion on macroeconomics, interest rates, the Federal Reserve, and all your favorite commodities, including... Gold, silver, PGMs, and Jeffrey Christian's latest take on lithium, which is fascinating, especially for all you lithium investors out there. I hope you enjoy it, and we will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I'm very pleased to welcome back Jeffrey Christian, managing partner of CPM Group, back to the program. Jeffrey, thanks for coming on the program again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think it's been about uh, four months now. That seems to be our rhythm, and I like it. Every three months, we sort of check in and see what the maestro in the gold and silver world has to say. So before we get specific, tell us what you're seeing. We're seeing a lot of volatility in the last few weeks. You know, the market's down pretty dramatically in the last month. What are you seeing? What are you feeling? What's your general just sense of things right now? You know, it's interesting because, yeah, we are seeing some volatility, but I think we're seeing, you know, uh, a lot of an emotional reaction to economic and financial data. If I can say it right, there is a, a concept called mega numerophobia, which is a fear of large numbers. And I think that that's one of the things that we've seen at play this week. You know, we obviously are seeing a change in monetary policy on the part of the U.S. Fed, as well as other monetary authorities. And there's a withdrawal of monetary accommodation that's going on because of the higher inflation figures. Fiscal policy is still extremely stimulative in the United States, Europe, China, and other countries. So that's going on. But, you know, you you saw the Fed come along this week and basically reiterate that which it's been saying for at least six months. And they said, yeah, we're accelerating our withdrawal of monetary accommodation because inflation has been more persistent than we had thought it would be. And they were being very transparent and very honest and open with with their analysis and the changes in their analysis. And the markets went crazy. And, you know, you saw the Dow Jones fall a thousand points in one day and then come back 1,100 points in the same day. And you look at that and you say, my God, this is really crazy. But then if you look at it as a percentage change, because the Dow Jones is so high right now, Mm. uh, you look at it as a percentage change, the volatility in the stock market actually hasn't been all that wild. Yeah, it's higher than it normally is, but it's not particularly big, but you see these big number moves like, you know, 500 points down, 500 points up the next day. And it causes investors to kind of freak out and react emotionally as opposed to responding intellectually to what's really going on in the economy, in interest rates, in currency markets, in equities, and in gold and silver. So I think that that's one one of the things that we're seeing right now is this emotional reaction to a change in the interest rate regime. Well, I think that's a a profound point you're making about the large numbers. In a sense, another way of phrasing that might be like a thousand points isn't what it used to be in the Dow. Like it used to be a pretty big deal, but now we've come a long way higher 
and all of a sudden it, it's not quite the same thing as it was, but we've all been kind of educated and trained that a thousand points is a pretty big deal. So that is actually quite interesting. Now, there are a few things that you actually mentioned already that I am kind of curious on. One is this idea of central banks doing different things at the same time. Like there's, I don't really recall, and you would know much more clearly than I would, but just as a you know, consumer of financial news, I don't really recall, say, the Fed tightening while, say, like, a you know, China is easing, which is what we seem to have now. Is this something we're already familiar with, or is this kind of a new situation? No, you know, there are times when the central banks are moving in the same direction, and then there are times when they are not. And it's it's not unusual that you would see that. What is unusual is that there may be a reduced cooperation and a reduced sharing of information between China, the Chinese central bank, the Chinese government, and Europe, Australia, the United States, and Canada. But, you know, I th it's not unusual that you'll see central banks and governments react to their domestic situation first and international conditions second. And so, you know, China is reacting to what's going on in China and it's applying more accommodation and it's, you know, it's acted to completely shore up the real estate market there, which has been overextended. And the United States is reacting to the fact that it probably was overstimulative in 2020 and we have inflationary consequences in 2021, 2022. Then that all being said, we're all still buying copper at the same price. So yeah. doesn't this make, say, the Fed's job harder if China is easing? Because it seems to me that the biggest issue with inflation has to do more with supply lines than, say, with the printing of money. And I, what do you think about that? And, and, and are they, has the Fed's job just gotten harder with China working at cross purposes to the Fed's? Well, let me answer the second part of your question first and then go back to inflation. No, I think actually China being more accommodating is actually positive or makes it easier for the Fed to tighten things because the combination of the Fed tightening and withdrawing monetary accommodation while the second largest economy in the world is being more accommodative actually causes investors to be more willing to finance the U.S. deficit and, and excessive fiscal policies. So I think that China's largesse actually plays to the Fed's uh, capacity to do what it needs to do. But going back to the more core question, which is inflation, we always point out inflation comes from two sets of factors. One is monetary factors. And the other one is the real economy. And yeah, what you saw in 2021 was that both monetary largesse in 2020 was having inflationary implications by flooding the economy with money. But you also had real economic trends in supply of goods and services and in the demand for goods and services applying inflationary pressures. So you had a very sharp increase in demand for goods and services in 2021. Part of it was because people were flush with cash because of monetary accommodation and because in 2020 they didn't spend anything. They stayed at home. So people had cash and they spent it. But, you know, if you look at the demand and various aggregates for demand and imports into the United States, these things were up sharply, like 20 percent from 2019 levels. So it wasn't a matter of, oh, we're recovering from the 2020 recession. It was a matter of we're recovering from the 2020 recession and we're racing ahead in terms of what we want to buy. At the same time, yeah, you had supply constraints on the physical side and you also had supply constraints on the labor side. A lot of people not coming back, a lot of people burning out, a lot of nurses and other hospital workers just saying, I got to take a break. I've got, I'm suffering from PTSD, you know, and, and so you had real economic pressures that were pushing prices higher too. Now the Fed can be less accommodative, but you'll still have those real economic 
pressures pushing uh, prices and inflation higher. And so that's the quandary for the Fed. The Fed can only do what the Fed can do. It can't necessarily control, it can influence the real economy in terms of supply and demand. Well, exactly. So it, it seems to me, if I was to you know try and read what they're doing, it seems like they're trying to lower demand while not crushing the economy, right? Like it, that seems to be the the what yeah. they they're trying to do. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to they're trying to sterilize some of the inflationary implications of monetary policy and real uh, growth and real demand for goods and services. They're trying to sterilize some of the inflationary implications without throwing the economy back into a recession. Right. And so just to go back to the China, you know, easing doesn't like China easing, doesn't that put a pressure on commodity prices? Like I thought when we heard and correct me if I'm wrong here, like when China announced that they were easing, when I heard it on Bloomberg that they were easing, it seemed like industrial commodities had a bit of a bump. I think that was last week. Upward. Yeah. Above yeah. upward. Yeah, like, absolutely. You, yeah. Yeah. And and one of the things, again, you know, governments and central banks worry about domestic conditions first. And so China's looking at an economy that is is facing severe lockdowns because of the zero COVID policies. And the central bank is saying, we've got to be extremely accommodative because on a real economy side, you've got major constraints on demand and that's going to be problems. But the Chinese government will also say, look, if we are reducing our copper, aluminum, nickel production, our lead and zinc refining output because of the zero COVID thing and cutback and stuff, but we still need copper, et cetera, we will supply Chinese requirements first and we'll export later, you know, secondary. So that does have an inflationary implication both within China and within on a global basis. Yeah, interesting. So it just seems in one respect, like you say, it helps the Fed, but in other ways, it seems to hurt them. If, because if they start tightening and inflation on the commodity side and the real world economy, as you put it, keeps going up, it sort of seems reminiscent of that, you know, late 70s, early 80s situation or the Paul Volcker era before my time. Uh, it's, it seems reminiscent that that scenario could play out. What do you think of that? Well, that scenario is a risk. It's probably a low probability risk. And what you have to do is you have to go back. You have to go back and say, well, what were similar then to where we are now and what was different to where we are now? Prior to October of 1979, the Fed targeted interest rates as opposed to inflation. And inflation was 14 percent. You know, so the Paul Volcker came in and, and you know, it was, it was interesting because Volcker was basically a Republican type of guy. And, and Jimmy Carter hired him to run the Fed because inflation was out of control. And Volcker said, you know, I'm going to raise interest rates to 21% ultimately to kill inflation. And that's going to throw us into a recession and it's going to cost you the election. And Jimmy Carter said the U.S. economy beating inflation is more important than my reelection. You know, and you got to give him credit for doing that. And Volcker did it. Volcker raised interest rates to 21%. We had 14% inflation. We were coming from an era of decades of very low interest rates into a deregulated, not only a deregulated interest rate market, but a deregulated debt market. Prior to the late 70s, you know, if you wanted to borrow money, you had to borrow money from a bank. And all of that was being deregulated. And all of a sudden, you had all these non-bank financial institutions that could lend you money. And the whole system was changing. So we were going through industrialization, computerization, modernization, deregulation, domestically, globalization. And all of those factors were pulling and pushing the economy in different ways. And we saw 14% inflation. 
you know, now we're up to what, 7% inflation. So we're half as far as way. You know, you also had very high un unemployment once you went in there. You had an auto industry that was on its back. You had Soviet troops in Afghanistan and American hostages in Iran. You know, you had a whole lot of things that you just don't have right now. So it is a risk, that kind of thing. But that was the last century. And we're in a different economic and financial and political environment now. Not to say that we don't have risks and, and problems, but they're radically different from the ones that we were facing in 1979-1982. So things really are different this time, and you have to respond to the root causes of inflation today and the root causes of fiscal deficit spending and, and rising debt that are important now as opposed to what was important 40 years ago. Fair enough. So you, of course, are what I'd call an expert in precious metals. So where does that leave, say, gold and silver? I guess we'll start with gold because probably in your mind, gold and silver are quite different things. Uh, where does that leave us, say, with gold in your mind? Yeah. You know, our view is that there are long-term issues that the world is not resolving. And in fact, the political dissolution, both within the United States and within other countries, and then on a global international basis, you know, we don't have the capacity to deal with these problems. And those problems are long-term problems that probably will push gold prices sharply higher at some point. But looking at it on a shorter-term basis, you know, 2022, we have a relatively healthy economy we do have an inflation problem, but the Fed has indicated and signaled that A, it's fully aware of that inflation problem, and B, it's taking steps, it's leaning into the wind of inflation, and it will probably get it under control. And one of the things you saw this week with the lower gold prices, silver prices, and stock market is financial markets saying, okay, when interest rates rise, they indicate one of two things. And what's important is there are several things that are important. One is interest rates rising. Second thing is how high are they or how low are they? And, you know, interest rates are very low right now. They can double, they can triple, they can go from 0% to 1% to 2% and still be at historically low levels. And inflation-adjusted interest rates will be negative. And probably, according to the Fed, they'll probably stay negative on short-term interest rates for the next decade. So interest rate increase is not necessarily a big issue right now. So we think that you're going to see relatively low interest rates, negative real rates. The dollar is not collapsing, nor is it skyrocketing. It's moving sideways in a clearly defined channel that's been in place since around 2014, 2015. You know, economic growth is rising. You do have problems like the Russians on the border of the Ukraine and the China, the South China Sea issues. You do have things that could upset the apple cart, but it looks to us like 2022 is going to be a year of relatively decent growth, inflation coming under control, interest rates rising modestly. And in that kind of environment, we see the gold price moving sideways, you know, building a consolidation. And it's very funny because you have the gold bugs tell you that gold prices are so low. No, gold prices are at a record level. You know, it's they're down today to 1786, 1787, as we're talking. But the reality is that those are record highs. You know, the gold prices on an annual average basis are at record highs the last couple of years, and they're staying very high. And what we see is a consolidation period in 2022 where the price doesn't necessarily fall much below, say, 1750, but the price doesn't rise very far above 1850 for an extended period of time until the next cycle of more severe economic or political consequences start to come home to roost. And do you have a timeline as to when you think that might occur? We're thinking that it might start to emerge in 2023. But, you know, what we're saying is sometime between 2023 and 2025, we wouldn't be surprised to see another recession. We wouldn't be surprised to see some currency market unrest. We're particularly worried right now about the political environment. And, you know, 2024 is a, a U.S. election year. 2022 is a by-election. It's going to be important. But the consequences of the November election will be more important in 2023 
than they are in 2022. So we think at some point in the next four years, 2023, 2025, you're probably going to see a more hostile economic environment, which is going to have negative consequences in financial assets like stocks and bonds. And you're also going to have a worse political environment domestically in the U.S., domestically in parts of Europe, domestically in other countries, and then internationally, China versus Europe, China versus the United States, China versus Canada, Russia versus the world. You know, so I think that all of those things come home to roost probably within the next four years. Interesting. So you almost see a bit of a, shall we say, for lack of better words, unresolvable political environment to a certain degree, and that this will eventually boost gold higher. Is that fair? Except for the use of the word unresolvable. I mean, the things could easily be resolved. Sure. Uh, you know, it, it's really sad. You know, look, after World War II, we created the United Nations to give our place, a, a, give the world a place to resolve uh, political problems without going to military issues. And we have put UN peacekeepers in between adversaries around the world for 70 years, right? Why do we not have UN peacekeepers in eastern Ukraine? That's yes. an easy solution to that problem, but for reasons that reside with the U.S. government and U.S. politicians and the Russian government and Russian leaders, it's not being done. So these things are actually resolvable. The fiscal deficits in the United States are actually pretty easily resolvable, but the political willpower is not there. Yeah, I think that's actually a very good point. It's almost like the world, to a certain degree, has imaginatively given up on the UN, and this whole idea of blue helmets almost seems like a bit of a anachronism or this thing from the 90s. It's like, you know, that went out of style with uh, George W. Bush and the Iraq War. Okay, so now as far as if we look at commodities in general then, because we've seen a big lift, and I mean in primarily the metals, which is sort of your bailiwick and our wheelhouse here. Do you think m most of the gains are baked in? Because we've seen a pretty big rise, let's say, in the last, I mean, you look at tin, you look at aluminum, it's almost across the board. Copper looks good. It's not phenomenal, but it's looking pretty strong. Zinc is really looking really good. You, you go across the board, it's all looking quite positive. Do you think a lot of the gains are baked in already and that maybe it's a bit of a tired trade or do you think there's a, a, a long way to go still? I think from the perspective of the next year or two, the gains are baked in for industrial metals. But that longer term, beyond 2025, I think that you'll see stronger prices. Now, if you talk about the fact that these prices have risen so far, that goes back to what I was talking about on a macroeconomic level earlier. You know, we have demand for a lot of things, including metals and things made out of metal. Demand for a lot of manufactured products that use these metals is not just recovered from 2020. It's much higher than it was in 2019 and 2018. And you have the, the supply side of a lot of base metals that were really damaged in 2020 with the global lockdown. And they've had trouble sort of restarting their gears in 2021. And that helped push this, the prices higher. That's continuing to some extent. And you have this nationalistic uh, uh, thing going on, resource nationalism, which is limiting it. But we do think that, you know, 2022, 2023, you've seen big price moves because we're coming out of 2020 and we've got a strong demand for these products. I think that kind of plateaus for a while. If we're right and you see a recession in 2024 or 2025, that would hurt the demand for base metals and industrial metals. But then you'd have an economic recovery 2026 going forward, and that will probably then find a lot of the supply of a lot of those metals constrained so that you'll see higher prices once more. Interesting. So it's almost a... I don't know if we'd call it a catch-22. That might be overstating things. And I know you don't like to overstate things, but <laughs> whenever we get an economy that starts to heat up, you're basically saying these there's going to be pressure on these commodity prices. Absolutely. And back to this, you not liking to overstate things, how much of a reality, like I, I suspect you're a little uh, skeptical of this idea of resource scarcity. It comes up, you know, it's kind of almost like a gold bug type of uh, trope. 
But I mean, as I hear you describe these things, like, I mean, you call it resource nationalism. It does sound like there's not enough to go around. What do you think? There are constraints on supply and the constraints on supply are almost all human made. You know, so when we talk about, well, what are the re mineable reserves, mineable resources, estimated and in inferred resources, there's an enormous amount of most commodities, including oil, natural gas, gold, silver, copper. It's there in the ground. It's not necessarily coming out because of man-made limitations. Resource nationalism is one of them. And you know, you're finding that it's going on. Another one is a breakdown of international cooperation. There are estimates, the USGS has uh, estimates of how much gold and silver and copper are in the ground in undiscovered deposits or mineralized areas in Western China and Eastern Russia. Yeah, so Siberia into to Xinjiang and, and Mongolia and Tibet. And these are largely unexplored areas that are kind of cut off from the capitalist world to some extent. Uh, but there seems to be a tremendous amount of stuff there. But again, there are human-made limitations to going in, exploring, developing, delineating properties, developing those properties and mining them. Interesting. So it's not that there's not enough metal. It's more that we're having, you might call it a, for lack of a better word, a political issue of getting it out of the ground, a challenge of getting it out of the ground. Okay. So not to jump around too much, but so we talked about gold. How are you feeling then about silver, which is often linked sometimes to, you know, it's half industrial, half precious metal. How are you feeling about silver? Our view toward silver is somewhat the same as our view toward gold. What we've seen in the second half of 2021 into this year is there were a number of people who were new silver investors, people who had not formally invested in silver. They were attracted to silver by the siren song of, oh, there's a squeeze, the world's running out of silver. There was this really nonsensical stuff about how the mining industry didn't have enough silver reserves and resources predicated on a total misunderstanding of how mines work and how reserves and resources are calculated. And then you also had this thing, oh, the world's running out of above ground refined inventories and, you know, the price is going to rise and there are these enormous shorts. And there were promises that the silver price would rise to 50 or or $100 by last February. Well, then it was last April, then it was last July and October and December, and now it's January 22. And in fact, the silver price has gone down, but two bucks or so, you know, and I think you've got a lot of disenchanted investors saying, you know, gold makes sense. It's a much more of a monetary and financial asset. Silver, you know, I, I just, it just has, it, it's got the taste of a revival tent snake oil salesman telling me, oh, silver is going to be a hundred dollars. And listen, I've been telling you this for 40 years. I'm going to be right someday. You know, right. and and so you're seeing a greater caution toward investing in silver on the part of investors. That's going to restrain silver prices more than gold prices might be restrained this year. And ultimately, I think the fundamentals will take over and the price will rise. But you've got to get through this period of disenchantment by the part of investors. That all makes a lot of sense to me. And yeah, it, it does have that almost, it's almost like a meme stock type trade, the silver trade. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got that uh, sociological side to it and that kind of excitement that you're going to get rich quick. Before we move on to, I'm curious about your take on platinum and palladium, but before we move on, when in your mind do you see us, say, breaking those old all-time highs of $50 or so uh, in your view? Probably around 2024, 2026. Okay, so you basically, if I'm to kind of sum up a little bit, you see a bit of a break here for a year or two as we kind of go through this, these machinations with the Fed and everything. And then you see once the economy starts to get kind of back its its footing and starts to grow, you see the this general commodities trade start to come back and, and go to the next stage, we might say. Yeah, at least at least in gold and silver we see that. You know, I mean, you, you know, one way to think of it is a technical analysis measured move. And you saw gold and silver prices reprice themselves 
from say 2018 to 2020, 2021. You know, and so silver went from $15 an ounce to $23, $24 an ounce. And gold went from $1,200 an ounce to $1,800 an ounce. I mean, it got over $2,000 for a day or a couple hours, but you know, say $1,800 an ounce. And our view is that that was maybe the first leg of a measured move upward. So now we have the consolidation phase. And then after a couple of years of consolidation, 2021 being the first year of the consolidation, after a couple of years of consolidation, we may see similarly sized upward moves in gold and silver beyond 2022. So yes, uh, you know, and that puts it into 2024, 2025, uh, where you would see those peaks. Yeah, it all sounds really reasonable. And what I like about it is it's not too dramatic. Uh, but it sounds all very reasonable. Now, before we go, I do want to ask you about what's going on with platinum and palladium, because I, I know you probably have an idea, because it seems like it's been kind of a weird trade. I mean, palladium dropped pretty significantly. I don't know if it was in the last couple of months. It seemed to be, you know, I, I, if memory serves, somewhere in the $1,700 an ounce. And now I, I'm looking at my uh, CNBC here, it's at 2375. Like, what is going on with palladium? Yeah. Well, yeah. First off, palladium prices rose very sharply. Last year was a very interesting year for platinum group metals because you had palladium and rhodium in the first half of the year rise to outrageously high, unprecedented record levels. You know, palladium got almost to $3,000, rhodium got almost to $30,000. In the second half of the year, Palladium did, in fact, fall to like fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars. So it gave up about forty percent of its value, and rhodium came off to like I think fourteen five. It might have been two, twelve thousand five. It gave up about sixty-two percent. Now they're starting to rise again, and palladium more so than rhodium, perhaps. What you're seeing is that in the second half of last year, these markets. We're reacting to the high prices, and you also had the chip shortage, which was limiting automotive demand for these markets. And you know, 90% of rhodium goes into autos, and pro probably about 67, 68% of palladium goes into auto catalysts. Now, going into 2022, the chip shortages are continuing, but they have loosened up somewhat. So you're seeing somewhat stronger auto production and auto sales. And that is being reflected in increased demand for platinum, palladium, and rhodium for use in auto catalysts. And the palladium market's small enough and illiquid enough that that's being reflected in rising prices. Interesting. So you would attribute what I guess we'd call volatility in the palladium market to it being a fairly illiquid market. Well, it's partly an illiquid market. It's a very small market. Uh, you did have investors rush in and then rush out, which always excel, uh, exacerbates volatility. But yeah, it's a it's a relatively illiquid market with a, a small number of participants. And so it can be more volatile than other more liquid markets. And finally on this, and just relating to all the... Is rhodium a metal, by the way? I was going to say all these Rhodium metals. is a metal, yes. Rhodium is a metal, thank you. How important is the car industry to these metals? Like I would say it, it's probably very important. Would you call it the main driving factor behind their prices or, or not? Platinum, palladium and rhodium. Yes. I mean, you know, the auto catalytic converter is the largest use of platinum, palladium and rhodium. And so Trends in automotive, short-term trends in terms of how much, how many cars are being produced and sold, and long-term trends in terms of, hey, what's the future of petroleum-fueled internal combustion engines versus electric vehicles or something else? You know, those are the single most important trends affecting platinum, palladium, and rhodium prices. And then investors key off of that and accelerate any moves based on the fundamental of automotive demand. Interesting. So will you see if you plot this out, say like palladium and platinum against Tesla, for example, will you see like an inverse correlation? Like when Tesla's high, platinum and palladium are low and vice versa? I haven't done that. I wouldn't be surprised if there is some 
sort of relationship like that because of the speculative nature of Tesla investing and uh, the role of investors coming into these small markets. Okay, and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but what's the long-term picture then as electric cars? I know you're skeptical with electric cars. I assume you're still skeptical of the ability of electric cars to dominate. But I mean, first of all, are, I, I ask you this every interview, I think. Are you still skeptical on electric? And where do you see basically these platinum, palladium, and, and rhodium in the next 10 years? Well, yeah, and I should, you know, if I, a little bit of, publicity for CPM Group, we did a online seminar on the future of Platinum Group Metals this week, and it's available on YouTube, and we talked about this. And one of the things that we have is a chart of what we think will be the mix between internal combustion engine vehicles and battery electric vehicles between now and 2050. It's not that we don't think electric vehicles are going to take market share. It's that we listen to some of the rhetoric about how fast they can take market share, and it doesn't seem realistic because you have a lot of constraints, electricity supply, stability of grids, the financing and capital required for the OEM component manufacturers and raw material people. And you have a lot of guys who are like the old joke about the economists, well, assume that they'll build those mines and assume they'll build those factories. But when you talk to the small companies that build all of those components and, and mine all that material that goes into an automobile, they say, we're having trouble raising capital, partly because of the uncertainties. You know, oh, wait, five years ago, everybody thought that we'd be using 30% cobalt sulfate in lithium-ion batteries. So there was this rush to invest in cobalt mines and to finance cobalt developments. And now it's, oh, it's 10% or less. So a lot of money has been lost in cobalt. So now you're telling me you need X, Y, or Z. And I'm saying, you know, what's the assurity that you're going to be there? Because you don't have any offtake agreements with auto manufacturers that they're going to use your motors or your controllers or anything else. So I think there are a lot of constraints that will slow the market share. In terms of PGMs, the importance is that if, if you look at the International Energy Agency projections, where we're going to get our energy over the next 30 years, you know, by 2050, petroleum is still the major source of energy for mankind, humankind. Uh, natural gas is the second. All other renewables combined is the third, and coal is the fourth. So we're still going to be burning hydrocarbons 30 years from now. We're still going to need PGMs to clean up the exhaust of burning those hydrocarbons. And so the PGMs should do well for decades to come. Meanwhile, because there was this over optimism about how fast battery electric vehicles would take over, the platinum group mining industry has been undercapitalized. And so you'll probably have supply constraints because these are mines that take 20 years to really you know, develop. You'll probably have supply constraints while you're still using more PGMs than a lot of people thought you would be using in 2030, 2040, 2050. So we think that this will be very supportive of platinum palladium rhodium prices in the long run. Do you have a view on lithium as well? The thing about lithium that I keep watching is recycling of lithium. Because if you're starting to use lithium ion batteries in the volumes that people are talking about in not only electric vehicles, but also in electricity storage systems, you're going to have so much lithium that is in spent batteries, and you're going to have a recycling industry. Now, the lithium-ion battery manufacturers traditionally have resisted using recycled lithium, but you're going to have such a mountain of lithium that you're going to, of necessity, start recycling that. And some of the lithium-ion battery manufacturers are now accepting recycled lithium. So that means that the demand for lithium new mine output is probably going to be significantly less than some of the more optimistic projections that you hear. Okay, so final question for you, Jeffrey. What is your message to investors? I mean, we have a stock market that feels, you know, it's very choppy, but like you say uh, in the big picture, it's actually nothing to write home about. You know, commodities, maybe it's already baked in a lot of the gains. 
what's the trade? Like, where do you go? Is this just going to be a sideways year and everything? And you store, you go in the dollar? Like, what, what do you do? I like the term broken field. And I think it's going to be a broken field. It's not going to be a broad brush. Oh, this is what you do. This is what you invest in. This is what you don't invest in. You know, this whole thing, this meme about risk on, risk off, doesn't really apply. What you're going to have to do is a lot of fundamental research. And you've got to take those fears that you have about, you know, what's going to happen with the dollar and interest rates and the stock market. And you have to channel that fear away from being letting it wash over you and giving into those fears and use those fears instead to focus your attention on making qualified, informed decisions, because it's going to be a broken field and you're going to have to make decisions on each asset, each metal, each stock, and you're going to have to be willing to monitor them because the outlook will shift as the price, the supply and the demand shift too. A broken field. I think that's what we might need to title this episode. Uh, thank you, Jeffrey Christian, Managing Partner at CPM Group. And if people want to find you online, Jeffrey, is it cpmgroup.com? Yeah, that's the address. And you can find a lot of free reads there as well as information about our services. Excellent. And you have a YouTube channel as well where you can watch your latest thoughts on the platinum market. Exactly. Okay, excellent. Well, thanks once again, Jeffrey, and we will talk to you probably in about four months. I'll be here. I like this nickname for Jeffrey Christian, the maestro. My interview with the maestro, Jeffrey Christian. So very, very interesting, especially this lithium trade maybe something the lithium investors haven't thought about. So something for the uranium people to think about today and something for the lithium people to think and something for everybody, actually. Something for everybody in this episode. I hope you're having a wonderful week. Arrivederci from Rome, Italy. And until next week, take care.